0: We read together from the New Testament, in fact, we read together from the very start of the New Testament, from Matthew's Gospel, we're going to read from chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 17, and you find it on page 965, 965 in your pew Bibles. It's one of those parts of Scripture that you think, what on earth is that doing there? on earth does this um, supply anything for our spiritual benefit? Well, we're going to read it together. I'd ask you to keep an eye out or an ear out for five names that are different from all of the rest. We're going to look at those in just a few minutes. But as we read this list, we remind ourselves that this is God Himself speaking to us, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nachshon. Nachshon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile in Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. And we thank God for His Word that we have read together this morning. Now, as we come to look at this part of God's Word, shall we pray together? Let us pray. Father, you've given us minds to think with, and we would exercise those minds now as we think together about these few verses. We pray that we might have an understanding that goes beyond what is natural to our human thinking as we listen for your voice whispering, as we discern that voice and as we respond to it. Gracious Lord, we offer ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, what is the point then? What's the point of the genealogy? Well, a a quick show of hands, perhaps. All right? Anybody who has ever written well, not quite that. That's not what I'm thinking about, I have to say. <laughs> ah, that, that's it, that's it. Anybody ever written a CV? A quick show of hands, if you've ever written a CV. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm doing at this time of the year is writing references for some of our students who are applying for things. And I get them to send me a CV so that I know a little bit more about them and, and I can write a, a fuller reference Sometimes you read a CV and think, is that the same person that I've got to know over the past couple of years? (laughs) Mm. Remarkable depths that I never appreciated. Well, what's the point of writing a CV? You write a CV in order that a potential employer will look at it and say, I just want that person. That's the person for this job. A CV says, here's all the good things that I've done. Here's what I am. And here's why you should want me to work for you. Matthew 1, 1-17, Jesus CV. Now, of course, it doesn't look like a normal CV. But if you were presenting yourself to somebody in those days, and you wanted them to think well of you, then you presented yourself as someone with good associations. And in particular... Someone who came from a good family. So you would present yourself as the son or daughter of so and so, grandson, granddaughter of, of the tribe of. And so you were authenticating that you were a good person because of the lineage that you came from. So this is really Jesus' CV. And you can see from a number of the names in it why it's a pretty good CV. The first name that you have in verse 2, well, there's one of the big names in Jewish history, Abraham. And then farther on down in verse 6, you've got another big name, David. So this CV from those two names alone is looking pretty good. And when you come down after David, through down to verse 11, you've got the names of the kings of Israel. So this is saying this person comes from pretty good stock. And even after uh, the return from from exile in Babylon in 13, you've got Zerubbabel, who led the people back uh, to their homeland. So this is looking like a pretty good CV, except for a few characters where you think, well, what are they doing there? And it's, I'm not thinking there are the likes of Manasseh in verse 10. Manasseh was not a nice person at all, but he's in the line of kings, so he has to be there. No, I'm thinking of the others that I asked you to keep an eye open for and the ones that we're going to be looking at today because you ask the question, why these women? What's the point of having them there? In fact, there seem to be three good reasons for not having them there. First of all, it's quite simply, they're women. (laughs) I'm glad I'm up here and you're down there, that's all I can say. (laughs) No, it's as simple as that. They're they're women. And in much of the ancient world, women did just not rate very highly. And as we'll be looking at in, in Life Builders, it's really only very recently, very recently, that we have begun formally and legally and structurally to say that men and women ought to be treated in exactly the same way. So, first of all, they're women, so they don't really have any, any call to be there. Second is that a couple of them, three of them, in fact, are foreigners. Now, you see, if, if the CV is trying to say, Jesus is pure Israel, he is a son of Abraham. He's of the line of David. He's a pure Israelite. Well, what are these three foreign women doing there? we look at these in a bit more detail in a minute. So they're, they're women. Three of them are foreign women. And the next image is a bit difficult to find. <laughs> a couple of them were naughty women, I have to say. I, think I just, just put it as gently as that they were not nice women so foreign not good women in fact only one of them really can stand up as being you know, a pretty good person that, that's Ruth the others just aren't so what are they doing there? what do they add to Jesus' CV? well let me run through them one at a time, and I hope to make the, make the point that, that they do add something very, very, very significant to Jesus' reputation. I'm just going to, to run through a number of from to, from to, and you'll see what I'm, what I'm talking about. Because all of these groups of women moved from being outsiders, so all of these women moved from being outsiders to being Insiders. They each made that same transition. And I wonder, is that the heart of why they're there? I get the feeling it is. Well, let's look at the first one. The first one is Ruth. If you look there in verse 5, there's Ruth. Many of us will be familiar with the story of Ruth, but if you're not familiar... Ruth was from the country of Moab. Her mother and father-in-law and their two sons moved to Moab in a time of famine. They settled there. The two sons married two local girls. And then tragedy struck. Ruth's father-in-law died. Her husband died. And her brother-in-law died. So we then had these three women on their own. Three widows. And as you may know, in the ancient world, widows were those who were at the bottom of the social scale. So Ruth's life, when we first come across her, is a life of tragedy. Things have fallen apart. She married into, from what we can tell, a decent family. But things just fell into tragedy. And Ruth then moves with her mother-in-law back to her mother-in-law's homeland, back to Naomi's homeland. And as she moves back into Naomi's homeland, she moves back to a situation of poverty. So she's a foreigner. She's a widow. She's poor. She's a woman. And therefore, very, very vulnerable. Can God... Re- rescue someone from a life of tragedy? I think that's what Ruth's doing there. Can God rescue someone from a life of tragedy, from a life that has simply fallen apart? It was no fault of my own. Things just happened, and suddenly life had fallen apart. Can God rescue someone like that? Well, of course, the fact that she's included in these verses is implying, yes, God can rescue from, some, from a situation like that. In fact, it goes beyond that, because if you look at those verses, and I have to confess here, to be perfectly honest, I hadn't seen this until a couple of weeks ago when I started to prepare this sermon. I, I said it said to, to, to my shame. Can God rescue Ruth? Well, yes, he can. Who was Ruth in the genealogy here? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Well, most of us know that uh, Ruth, if you you know your Bible, Ruth was the grandmother of David. Now, I knew that a fortnight ago. <laughs> Honestly, I did know that. And so as I was thinking, yes, God can rescue. And God can not only rescue from tragedy, but enroll the rescued one in the story of salvation. And my I just moved up a verse. and I thought, I didn't see that before. Why did I not see that before? And, and this is where I have to to confess. As we move on to the second one, because the second woman, in just the verse before that, sorry, sorry, my apologies. I have to take the glasses off here so that I can read (laughs) what what I'm looking at. In verse 5, in verse 5, Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, shame on me. It had never struck me before that Boaz's mother was a prostitute. Now, maybe you're all saying, yeah, Egypt, we all knew that. But if the first woman we look at was a woman who was brought from tragedy to joy and into the line of the Savior, the second woman whom we look at, Rahab, made an even more difficult transition. We meet Rahab, living in the city of Jericho, as a prostitute. Now, some have tried, have tried to, to soften that up a little bit and make it an innkeeper. Well, the two are essentially the same thing in that, in that context. Can God take someone from immorality to righteousness? Righteousness. Well, the plain teaching of these verses is yes, absolutely, he can. And not only from immorality to righteousness, but from immorality to being part of the story of Jesus, part of that great cosmic narrative. And so we stop for a minute. And we turn and we look at ourselves And we say, yeah, Drew, my life has fallen apart. I had such great hopes when I took that job, when I went to live in that place, when I married that person. I had such great hopes. But it's fallen apart. Or we look at ourselves and we say, Drew, if only you knew what I've done. If only these people sitting all around knew what I had done. No, there's no way back for me. And Matthew chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 say there is a way back for you. It doesn't matter how deep your tragedy has been. God can come into that tragedy and make something spectacularly new. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how naughty you've been. God can reach into your life and transform your life from something that brings shame to something that brings joy. simple as that sometimes this preaching thing really is straightforward let's look at a couple more if you look at Tamar (coughs) pardon me in verse 3 and we could probably take Bathsheba along with Tamar as well farther on down What about these two? Bathsheba will come to in a minute. She's a bit more, more well-known. Tamar, who, who was Tamar? Well, you, you can see a little bit of, of Tamar's uh, life story there. She was the mother, or, or sorry, she was the uh, wife of Judah's son. Now, reading the text, though, you don't get that straight away, do you? Jacob, the father of Judah and his brother. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. uh, Tamar first enters the Old Testament narrative as Judah's daughter-in-law. Again, tragedy strikes her as her husbands, two of her husbands, two of Judah's sons, die. Judah is obliged to give her his third son, in order to maintain her security and keep her as part of the family. But he says, oh, "Oh no, this has happened twice. I'm not taking a risk on this." And so, even when the younger son is grown up, he says, "No, no, 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 no. This is not going to happen." So, what does Tamar do? And this is why she comes into into this. She pretends to be a prostitute when Judah is is away. Uh, Let's say working overseas, shall we say. She pretends to be a prostitute and becomes pregnant by her father in law. So, what's Tamar's life like? Well, Tamar's got this touch of both tragedy and immorality. Come then to Bathsheba. Bathsheba is married to a soldier, Uriah. The soldier goes away fighting and she is left at home. Now, this is where you have to read the text and interpret it, and you can interpret it either way. Either she was innocently at home and just getting washed one day, and the king saw her, and she, she just never thought that anybody was watching. But the king fell for her and wanted her, and eventually had her husband killed. Or you can look at it in another direction, and you can see that while well, she was getting washed but she knew that up there was the king's window she wasn't stupid who gets washed outside who doesn't want to be seen and not only does she have uh, an affair with the king but she's complicit in her husband's mother uh, her husband's mother his her husband's murder so even if we read it in the best possible way and she begins as an innocent who is seduced by this powerful man, she certainly becomes complicit in her husband's murder. So again, is this mixture of, of tragedy and immorality. And the best that we can say for Tamar and for Bathsheba is that their lives are a mess, an absolute mess. Tamar's life goes on being a mess. Bathsheba's life goes on being a mess. But here they are in the genealogy of the Savior of the world. And we pause. If only you knew what a mess my life had become. Ah, let's take it out of the past. If only you knew what a mess my life is. It's not necessarily a catalogue of tragedy. It's not necessarily a catalogue of immorality. It's just a mess. Can God really do anything about this mess that is my life? Really? Really? I don't think so. Matthew 1 says yes. And not only does it say yes once, it says yes twice. Look, it doesn't matter what sort of mess you've got your life into. doesn't matter whose fault it was. doesn't matter if you were guilty of getting yourself into this problem or if things just happened to you and you're innocent or if it's a combination of the two. It doesn't matter. God can step in and do something fantastic. But, of course, there's one more woman, isn't there? And that's the last woman in the list. And that's actually, verse 16, the woman with the rubbish reputation. Uh, A couple of years ago, uh, I came downstairs, and there was an envelope on the table, and it had my name on it. Well, actually, said, just said dad on it, so I was fairly sure I knew who it was from. <laughs> and, and I opened the envelope, and there was a card. On the front of the card, it says, Dad, Daddy, I'm pregnant. And then a little small writing along the bottom, it said, I'm not really, I just wanted to get your attention. <coughs> Happy Father's Day. <laughs> 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 So after Anne had thrown cold water around me, (laughs) picked me up off the floor. We often think of Mary's pregnancy from Joseph's point of view. Think of Mary's dad. Think of her mother, her brothers and sisters. I think probably their, and most people's response to Mary when she said, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Two words probably. At least if they were from Belfast it would be two words. I write. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me if her father and brothers were looking for Joseph and he had to stay quietly out of the way for a while. Certainly her reputation was shot to pieces when she is found to be pregnant. Can God do anything with me with my ruined reputation? The bad stuff I've done has become public. The stuff that has happened to me has become public, but it still reflects on me. Can God do anything with someone whose reputation is shot to pieces? Well, absolutely He can. He most certainly can whether you deserve that reputation that you've got or whether you don't deserve it, whether your life is a mess and it's your fault or it's a mess and it's not your fault, whether you're guilty or innocent, whichever of these five comes together in your life or mine, God says, I can do it. And not only can I bring you out of that mess you've got yourself in and bring you to a place that's, that's fine, but I can enroll you into the great story of salvation, the great cosmic story. You can be part of that. There's a couple of verses in the rest of the New Testament, but I'll just just make reference to them. Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 11 on has this fantastic little phrase in it, God, or Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Did you ever notice that? These five women, many people would have been thoroughly ashamed to associate themselves with them. Of course they would. But God is not ashamed to hold out his arms and say, Come on, come on, join my family. I'm not going to be ashamed of you. I can take you from wherever you are, and I can be welcoming, and I can say, my son, my daughter, let me put my arms around you, and I will walk steadily with you, and my name will be associated with your name, and I will hold my head up high as I look at you and as you look at me because you're part of my family. And I will put my arm around you and say, my brother, my sister, Isn't that just fantastic? And is that what, isn't that what God calls us to be? As God calls us as His family so that we become a community into which all the Rahabs and Tamars, Ruths, Bathshebas, Marys, and put mail names onto those as well. In which they're all happy to come. Because we will not say to anyone, you? (laughs) We will not say to anyone NQOTD. NQOTD. It goes back to a a time when I I was, uh, Anne and I went for a picnic to a lake with a couple of friends. And the speedboat came across the lake and pulled in at a little jetty, and four folk got out, two men and two women. And the men were wearing shorts and no shirt. It was a very hot day. men were wearing shorts and no shirts. And the women were wearing very short shorts, and not much else. And they were carrying with them two picnic hampers, and two crates of beer. And they were loud, and coarse. And my friend... Uh, whispered to Anne, N-Q-O-T-D. And just let it hang there for a while. And Anne eventually said, what does that mean? And she said, not quite our type, darling. (laughs) Shame on us. Shame on us. Shame on us. If we ever look at anyone and say, not quite our type, darling. We're a family of the redeemed. We've all come to Christ with lives that are more or less mixed up. With more or less victimhood, with more or less immorality, with more or less reputations. And God has wrapped his arms around us and said, you're my brother, my sister. And as we are the people of God here in Bloomfield Presbyterian Church, let's make sure we also have those open arms that will wrap ourselves around everyone, everyone but everyone and say, my brother, my sister. As we all take our tragic tales and allow God to enroll us, to enwrap us, to bring us to our little place of, yeah, story for another day, of course, our little place of heroism in his cosmic story, his story, and ours becomes his. His becomes ours. Shall we pray together? And so, as we pray, we pause. And as we pause in the quietness, we recognize that we are far from perfect. Whether we have lived for many years far away from Jesus or whether we have walked with Jesus for many years, we recognize our imperfections. We look with sorrow at the difficult things that we've had to go through, at the messes that we have made, at the stupid, stupid, stupid decisions. And we hear God saying to us, I am not ashamed to call you my brother, my sister. And we say, Thank you, Lord. And gracious God, as your family here, we too are not ashamed to reach out, to embrace, to say, Come to Jesus. We welcome you as brother and sister. May it be so for us individually and together. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: We are going to have a time of prayer now. Uh, As we do that, we're going to be praying this morning for the Democratic Republic of Congo in particular. We've received our World Development Appeal envelopes uh, this morning with our order of service. And one of the uh, countries that we're particularly going to be contributing to as part of that appeal this year is the Democratic Republic of Congo. So we're going to especially remember that country in our prayers today. So let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name. Our Father, we praise you that you are the God of grace, a God who doesn't depend on our goodness, who doesn't need our best efforts, and who doesn't reward us as our sins deserve. Father, we praise you that your Son is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters by your grace. And Father, we long to see this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We long that you might make more people your sons and daughters. We long that you might make their story your story. We long that you might be all in all. And so we pray for our partner churches in Rwanda, including Gilgal Church, with Bill and Graham just having come back from a trip there. We thank you for the desire that they have to grow church members as one-to-one evangelists in Kigali. We pray that you'll give them a love for people around them, a passion for your glory, and an increased ability to talk about the gospel with their neighbors. Please with the new buildings that Bill was able to open up and dedicate, assist them in making disciples of Christ Jesus. And we pray that you'd give us insight here in Bloomfield as to how we might best resource and support our brothers and sisters in Kigali. And Father, we want to pray for our services this Christmas. We want to pray that as we host the Lord Lieutenant of Belfast and other dignitaries tonight, that we as a church would be like a city on a hill. Father, please teach our nation your ways. May we walk in the light of the God of Israel. Help Frank as he speaks and everyone else who's involved in the service, all of us, whether we're leading or stewarding or singing or praying, doing audiovisual or sound or lights. We pray that you'd make this service this evening a time that is special in all of our lives. And help us to make the most of the opportunities we have this Christmas season to invite our neighbors into church and to share our hope in this gospel of amazing grace. So Lord, we pray, may your kingdom come. And Lord, we pray too that your will may be done here on earth as in heaven. As we look ahead to this Christmas season, we want to ask that you'll give us a special dose of contentment this year, that we'll be satisfied with what we have in your abundance, that we'd live within our means in terms of how much we spend and in terms of how much we eat that we'd be ready to serve and be flexible, even when we're hoping to rest. And Father, as we think about our world development appeal, we want to pray for your will to be done in the Democratic Republic of Congo. For a country so rich in natural resources, it's hard to believe that there's so much poverty. And we mourn the loss of six million lives to war since 1999. But Lord, we also thank you for the work of Action Intrade in gender awareness and child protection, in uh, encouraging savings and small business schemes, and in peace and reconciliation. Lord, we pray for a fresh shower of your goodness in the Congo, for space, for people to build lives, for people to develop businesses, create employment and wealth. We pray that you would restrain those who mistreat women, And we pray that the money we provide would be a real benefit in providing a future for the Congonese. Uh, Father, we also want to pray for our brothers and sisters, the Hueys. Uh, Thank you for bringing them back safely from their mission trip in Niger. Thank you for the medical and practical skills that they were able to use to help people while they were there. And as they process uh, what they've learned over the last few weeks and what they've experienced, we do pray, Lord, that you would give them guidance. And would they be ready to do whatever it is that they discern is most in line with your will for them? Father, we pray, too, that you would give us our daily bread. We thank you for our spiritual food just now. And we pray that you'd give us the physical food and the other things that we need for our journey this week. We pray for those who are facing loneliness, cold, and ill health this Christmas. And we take a moment to pause now and remember them in our hearts. Our Father, we pray all these things, asking that you forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. We pray this with hunger and with hope. And so we say together in Jesus' name, Amen. We'll draw our prayers together this morning by saying together the Lord's Prayer. The words should be coming up on the screens as we pray. So let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread.